Father, we give you thanks that we can come here and the gospel sets us straight over and over again. Every one of these songs that we have lifted up to you have been in thanks for what you've done to make us your friend again. God, we give you praise. We give you thanks for sending your son. Lord God, and you also gave us your very precious word. And that's what's next. And so help us to be grateful recipients of what you have prepared for us this morning. Lord God, we need it. We are weak and needy people. We need a shepherd. And we need the shepherding words from our shepherd. So help us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Man, it is a gift to worship together, isn't it? I'm thankful for that. Yes, I'm with you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's just so tender you want to sit in the moment. I, uh, man, I, I'm uh, thankful to be with you again this morning, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. We're back in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 22 this morning, and as you're turning there, uh, I just wanted to uh, start with a couple of things. Um, this is the first time I've been able to preach since uh, Christmas Eve, and so uh, both Christina and I have talked about it all the way through um, this entire season, how thankful we are uh, for you as a church. And the last two years in particular, but at the Christmas season, your generosity to us, um, the, the way that you treat us, the kindness that you show um, my, me, my family, uh, is, uh, it's unparalleled. I, I don't know of anything like it anywhere. Um, we talk about what a wild thing it is to be so graciously treated by such a wonderful family. And so we are blessed by you. We're thankful for you. And uh, we're so thankful for the way I am that you treat my family. And I don't know how else to, I, I won't be able to ever repay it. Um, but the thing I love also is during the course of this last week, <clears throat> I watched that same generosity, actually the last couple of weeks, as we had uh, four different Celebration of Life services that landed here, um, a men's retreat. I, I leaned over at our, um, to our speaker partway through men's retreat, and I said, man, this is what it sounds like if a pirate ship got saved. <laughs> <laughs> we made a solid attempt at being on key, but we definitely were in love with the Lord, so... I watch uh, what is happening here week in and week out, and I see that same exact generous spirit, that kindness, that graciousness spills out to every single person uh, who is a follower of Christ. Everyone who names the name of Christ, everyone who is a member here, I believe you get that same experience. I pray that it's true, but uh, I, I thank you for being who you are in Christ and for putting that on display. We're really, really blessed. Um, the other thing that I wanted to highlight is uh, I've had a few questions recently just about, okay, so now that uh, this whole ordeal's over, when, when are you going to be back to your old, you know, your old regular schedule? Uh, I just want to comment a couple things without being uh, inelegant. Um, they cooked me, okay? <laughs> 
And in the process of that, there are complications that will come and go for uh, a season, and the, the guys have been gracious to kind of help me work through uh, those things. Uh, but can I say this as, as strongly as I can? Uh, I really don't believe that there is a B team at Salem Heights. Amen? In fact, I, I want to say this, and, and uh, the staff understand this to be true, but uh, there are times where somebody will call and they will ask for me, and what they already know is, well, what you really need is this other person. I would have to study for a long time just to catch up to where most of our men are in certain situations. God's given us a, a, just a, a gifted team uh, of sold-out, God-following pastors, a team of shepherds. I'm thankful to serve with them, and, uh, and I pray that you sense that. And so I, I'm, I'm honored to sit under their teaching uh, as well as be a part of that teaching team. And so, yeah, I'm endeavoring to do whatever I can uh, to not be a burden um, but I don't think that having more time in front of you would be would, would equal blessing other than I, I just love being a part of that shepherding team. I love being a part of what God's called us to do here, and I love seeing what we're doing in the community. So uh, I'm thankful that you let me participate, uh, and we'll let God determine the, the time frame. Amen? I don't know how else to say that other than um, we'll let him decide. We're going to be in the book here. Uh, this is part three of The Darkest Night. We actually had started this series right before Christmas, and I remember thinking that's a tough title for a sermon series right before we celebrate the birth of the Savior. But this is, these moments leading up to the cross uh, are defining moments. These are moments where we see not only the passion of Christ to keep moving that direction, he had an option. It seems evident to us to be able to escape. He knew what was about to happen, and yet he was moving towards the cross. So in these moments, we see not just the intensity of what Christ went through, but we also see in those moments his love for us, that he stayed there, that he went to the cross on our behalf, not because he got caught by surprise. In fact, he didn't. He orchestrated the entire thing in order that you and I might be set free. These moments were his passion. And leading up to this, he is teaching his men some deep things. It's his final thoughts right before he's crucified. It's his final thoughts uh, before all of this is paid for. Significant moments. We're going to be in Luke 22. We're, we're focusing on verses 24 through 30, but I want to start with verse 21. Let's stand and read this passage together. Remember, they have just celebrated uh, the first Lord's Supper, Christ taking over in that moment, uh, those pictures of the Passover, uh, and showing them uh, what they were to understand for the rest of their days. The institution of the church age would all come from this moment. And he says, behold, the hand of the one betraying with me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Can you imagine that? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. The one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you believe that Christ said those words? You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to pay attention now to this passage, that we would be able to reflect on it, to be able to see not only what was told to the disciples in these moments, uh, this key transitional moment in that evening, but also, Father, for us to apply those things, principles, to ourselves. There are reactions that they had, statements that they made that are in us as well. Father, help us to be able to see that and to be able to submit to you our hearts. Help us to be able to walk out of here committed not just to avoiding selfishness, uh, but to living lives of sacrifice. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In your notes, C.S. Lewis described pride as well as anybody. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison as though pride through the pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The disciples' final night with the Savior would be marked by pride. And when confronted with change, these men look to themselves rather than the Savior. Their fear and selfishness led to a fight. As we seek to kind of understand this, I was reminded of a young man. Um, we have a couple of pictures here. One is of a guy named Joey D. Guy on the left-hand side of the screen. Joseph Stalin, when he was a young man, ends up in seminary. His mom knew that he wanted to make his mark on the world, that he wanted to make some kind of radical difference and was hoping that uh, through training in the church that he would be softened, that his views would be uh, turned the right direction, but ultimately that would be a failure. Um, he didn't want to win the world through peace. He didn't want to win the world through service. In fact, he became known as trying to change the world through revolution. He wanted to rise up, and he didn't want to just rise up in his home country. He wanted the world to rise up. He wanted to create revolution wherever he would go and would support it. He became known as a violent man, and becoming friends with Lenin, ultimately taking over uh, in Russia when they became uh, communists as that transition was happening. Stalin took what Lenin had done and made it even more atrocious. 
One of the things that he did in front of his men was he took a chicken and he said, I want to show you how to cause the people to follow you. Is it through feeding them? Is it through helping them? Is it through training them? No. And he takes that chicken and he plucks in front of them with a squawking and squabble and all of the screams of this little chicken. He's pulling out all of the feathers until it's just naked. And then he drops it on the ground. And this horrified chicken, not knowing what to do, instead of running off or escaping its captor, ran right to his feet looking for protection. Here's the one that just stripped it of everything. Runs right straight to his feet and he says, this is how you train the people to follow. And he would become one of the most abusive rulers that they had. He wanted to beat them into submission. This violent man that at one point had studied God's opinion, had studied what it was that God had planned for the world, said, I pick an entirely different way. There was all kinds of problems that led up to that final moment of his death, but ultimately as his life was failing, his men were around him. Um, he, he was so suspicious of the power play that he couldn't have anybody near him. And it's Svetlana, his daughter, who actually records that in those final moments, he's having a battle, she said, with God. He'd, he'd lived a life in defiance. And in his final moments, as he is coughing and choking, he raised himself up on his bed and shaking his fist towards heaven with just a silent, last, desperate move to say, uh, I still have power, he dies. Shaking his fist at heaven, no words. She said it as if at the final moment he knew he was going to have to deal with only one. Didn't have to prove himself to the rest of the world, he had to prove himself to one, and he died shaking his fist at heaven. How do you start in a place where all that truth is available to you? How do you start in a place like seminary and end at a place shaking your fist as a tyrant? It's pride. It is rejecting Christ's plan and picking up your own. These men had one in their midst who was a lot like a Stalin, but they themselves were about to make a choice. Would they listen to Christ? Would they focus on his plan or would they focus on their own? When left to our own devices, we end up heading the direction of Stalin. All of us have that rebel within us. And Christ is going to teach them how it is they can avoid becoming that kind of person. Uh, I want to make sure that we understand that there is something that is going on in this text that Christ is addressing. And in the backdrop we have here that Christ exposed two truths and a liar. At the very beginning, the reason that these men are having their battle is because of these truths and the liar that got exposed. The first truth is that the promised kingdom was coming. Jesus' own words uh, in the verse of the passage before this is that I would not drink of this cup again until the kingdom is fulfilled. He's intending to tell them it's still in the future. It is still coming. And when it comes, I'm going to finish this celebration. And he actually, we understand this to be uh, that he stops the ceremony that they would have been accustomed to right before the final cup, which was the cup of the kingdom, and says, we'll finish this together when it's finally fulfilled. He finishes partway through, but the kingdom is still future. The millennial kingdom is real. The millennial kingdom is future, and it is going to fulfill the promises that God made to Israel and incorporate you and I, incorporate the church. This, this is an amazing thing. 
There's a lot of debate about this, and we don't have time to unpack it this morning, but I would encourage you, uh, if you have any curiosity about this, uh, Carl and I have set aside some, um, uh, some different papers that, that talk about this element of the kingdom, even in Christ's statements right here with his men. But the kingdom is coming. This is what we understand. If God makes a promise, he will follow through with it. Amen? And when he promises a people something distinct, you cannot lose that through your failure because all of us are failures. God makes a promise based on his character alone, and you're invited to participate in it. He said the kingdom is still on. second truth that's there is there is a new covenant that's beginning. There's really only one place where we hear of this new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, Christ uses words from this very passage in his statement to his men. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is my promise, he says. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, notice the two groups, not like the covenant which was made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He keeps saying, this is my word. This is on my character. I'm going to do this. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach any man again his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And he goes on in verses 35 through 37. You can mark this in your Bible and read it on your own. But he says, if you can remove the day and the night, if the sun disappears and the stars explode, then maybe I can remove this promise. In other words, nobody will be alive so I don't have to keep the promise. He said, the only way to remove this promise is if everything is completely destroyed. The character of God will see it through. This is the passage Christ is referring to. Jesus is pointing here to a fourfold promise. He's saying that there's a new covenant. It has a new mode. There's a law that's in their heart. It has a new result. They will know me. Um, they, they will actually have an internal understanding. I will be faithful. Uh, it has a new basis. Uh, full forgiveness is the basis, not the law, not any other works. There's nothing else that you do to participate. Full forgiveness brings you into this relationship, and there will be a new scope. Everyone will know me. There's a day coming, still future, when this will be in its full flower, in the millennial kingdom, when everyone will see him, everyone will experience him, and the law will be written on our hearts. But we live right now in the benefits-looking future. Without going into great detail, there was another promise that was made that you can remember that can kind of help you wrap your mind around this. There was a promise made to Abraham that he was going to be a great nation and that that nation would be in the land. But do you remember that he never saw the fullness of that promise, even though he was known as the father of that nation? He would have one son, and his son wouldn't see all the fullness of that. He would have one son, and that son would have 12. But it would be over 500 years before Israel would be known as Israel, as a group, where they would be formed as a nation, and even longer still till they would arrive in the land. 
They wouldn't arrive in the land until a much future date, but they were all living inside of that promise. They were still a people of blessing. They were still experiencing the blessings of that promise, and so are we today. We are people of the new covenant, experiencing the blessings of that, but there is a full flower of it. The full fruit of it is still coming. Christ says, look for it. Now, they're all excited. They're like, man, we haven't talked about themes like this for a long time. Our people have been discouraged. They've been overwhelmed. They've been thinking that all those blessings are off. And Christ says, no, I guarantee that they are still on. He says, but I want you to understand something. There's someone who even right now wants to thwart that, who wants to remove that opportunity. There's somebody sitting at our table who's a betrayer. There's a liar in our midst. So now they're, they're thinking about all of the awesomeness of the kingdom and all of the potential, and their minds are thinking, it might even be tomorrow that this all starts. But there's a betrayer, and, and this shocks them. It says, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. I think that it is that discussion that leads us to our passage. The very next verse it says, and then there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. This is a reaction to trying to discover who's the worst, all right? Isn't this just how kids work? We start with one discussion and it morphs into an entirely other one and it becomes a Donnybrook. Everybody is angry at the other one. They're trying to prove who is the best. I think this is a natural reaction to the discovery that there was somebody in their midst who was a betrayer. I, I want to highlight three things about this, why, how we end up having a battle about trying to figure out who's the greatest, and then Christ's response to this. Twofold process here. The first thing is the disciples were desiring stable leadership. They're looking around the table at other men uh, who they believe are all leaders, and they're saying, who is the betrayer? Who is the one that is destructive? And this discussion about the greatest, I think, arrives first off because they wanted to avoid suspicion. In John chapter 13, we see a little bit more of this discussion. John 13, uh, 20 says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Christ is like, I have sent you, I'm going to be in you, whoever receives me will receive you, whoever receives you receives me, but Jesus said this, and, and he becomes troubled in spirit, verse 21 says, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So I'm talking about all this beauty, about the fact that others that receive you are your friends, but there's one sitting right here who will betray you. And the disciples looked at one another at a loss to know who he was speaking of. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, that's how John described himself, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him, hey, psst, who is he speaking of? And leaning back on Jesus' bosom, he says to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So then he dipped a morsel and he gave it to Judas this is a shocking moment. He gives it to Judas, and they all go, who could he be talking about? Okay? <laughs> he hands it to him, 
And in other passages we know, he says, whatever you do, go do quickly. And he gets up and he leaves. And they're like, oh, he's got some shopping to do. I mean, we're hungry boys. (laughs) Judas leaves. Why is it that they weren't thinking it was Judas? Man, there are so many thoughts that come to my mind, but I want you to understand something. There's something about the Judas spirit that was always leaving. Judas and a Judas spirit is always restless. It can't sit under the word. It wouldn't sit there when Christ was going deep with his men. It wouldn't be settled. It was always getting up. It was always leaving. It was always stepping out for something important. It was always helping with knickknacks and trinkets and secondary things because it did not like. The Judas spirit does not like to be under the word. It doesn't like to be near the Lord. He was always leaving. He was always restless. A term that we use here, threefold term, is he was bitter, bothered, and blaming. He was just that guy that was always irritated. The curmudgeon got up, and they thought, well, he's got to go buy some food. He's doing something. That's what Judas does. They didn't know that Judas was the wrecker. If Judas was a uh, sailing term, he'd be a hidden reef. If he was a fishing term, he'd be a snag. Didn't see it. It's ruining all your gear. If he was an accounting term, he'd be an embezzler. In the FBI, he'd be a double agent. If Judas were a perfume, he would be silent but deadly. The stench of this man was in every single place, but nobody could put their finger on it. Who is he? He has left the room. They don't know who he is. And the thing about a Judas spirit is that their pride, Judas's pride, was never assailed by Christ's kindness. Christ was kind to him in the same way that he was to all the other disciples. The disciples never saw a distinction. Judas wouldn't bend. He wouldn't break. He didn't yield to Christ. Now, before we jump off this point, I, I would just like us to pause and think about that. In your own life, how faithful are you? If Christ were to come into the room right now and say, there is somebody in here that's a betrayer, and the people to the right and the left of you begin to get a little bit restless and ask, who could it be? Would you be nervous? If they began to reflect on your attitude, if they began to reflect on your commitment, if they began to reflect on your recent activity six days out of the week and not the seventh, would it make you nervous? You think, I think that the reason that the fight breaks out is because every single man at the table looked inside his own heart and says, that could be me. That could be me. And then he says, wait, that's not me. And then they began to prop up and throw out to everybody all of their accomplishments and why it is that they actually were a leader. And this is our response to conviction. Every single one of them didn't notice Judas because they rightly were looking inside their own heart saying, man, I think I could do that. Am I the mess? Does Jesus know something about me that I don't? Am I exposed? And then they begin to fight over who's the greatest as a campaign to prove that they were faithful. They wanted to avoid suspicion. But secondly, they wanted to clear up succession. This fight would happen three different times that we get recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. 
Three different times they would have this battle. And every single time, Jesus has told them that he's going to die. And they're worried, well, what do we do? In that moment, who's going to lead? I've shared these statistics before, but it's shocking to me. In a wealthy families, 70% of their wealth will be gone when the next generation takes over control. 70% of the time, wealth disappears with the next generation. 90% of the time, it disappears within two. The same actions and heart and the ability to grow a, a, a great wealth is destroyed by those who cling on to it. It's said that in our nation, a poor succession plan has led to a great financial problem in the United States. They did a study of top Fortune 500 companies who had made a change to their leadership in the past couple of years. This is an amazing thing. By having forced resignations or forcing people to change or by having somebody step down who was prepared to retire for a long season but finally does it and not having a healthy succession plan, they said that the cost to those companies and ultimately to the GDP of our nation was $112 billion in the last five years. $112 billion through sloppy succession plans, not knowing how we're going to move ahead. Isn't that amazing? Not having a plan is ruinous. I think that part of what's going on is, man, this could be me. They begin the billboard. And then when everyone else starts putting up all their goods saying, well, I did this and I did this, they're all looking around saying, well, you know what? We need to follow somebody, but I'm not going to follow you and not you. Who's going to lead us? Not you. Not you. You know what? What about me? That's what happens. They're clearing up the succession plan and they're thinking of who they would want to follow. Every single one of us thinks that we could run the United States better, right? If you haven't said it out loud, you've thought it in your head. We couldn't. We couldn't do it. We'd mess it up. If you had full control of the universe, you would ruin it. Just say amen. amen. You'd destroy it. You'd ruin your neighbors. You'd ruin everybody else. Your family would be sitting like kings, okay? But everything else would be destroyed. We don't have the ability to run things outside of sovereignty. They're trying to clear up succession, but the third thing they're doing is they wanted to prove that they were serious. A short while ago uh, in Florida, uh, early in the 2000s, uh, a youth pastor was trying to talk about the seriousness of sin and how one choice can ruin you. And he had a pistol that he had loaded with a blank, and he was showing them that it was like having a Russian roulette game being played every single time that you went out and did that. And he shot the first time, and uh, he shot over his head, but there was nothing. The, the pistol just clicked. And then he did it again to show them how serious it was, and the pistol just clicked. And then he does it one more time, only this time he had put that pistol up near his head. And even though it's a blank, they still have cardboard that's inside there. He pulls the trigger trying to show the seriousness of making a bad decision and shoots himself in the head. Now, thankfully, he lived, but there was a horrifying moment as he shoots himself, falls over. Everyone in the auditorium at first is shocked because of the explosion, and then they laugh, thinking that it's a joke, only to find out that, in fact, he had made a terrible decision to highlight making terrible decisions. <laughs> Something's really wrong here. He wanted to prove the seriousness of making a bad decision. 
Have you ever wanted to prove yourself? I can remember being just a scrawny little guy. I didn't make five foot until I was in the 10th grade, all right? Shrinky dink. Just a small guy, and I was on the basketball team, and we were going up against a team from Elkton that had won the state championship the last couple of years, and so they had some big, angry rednecks on their team, all right? These were brutal guys. They were shaving by fourth grade, okay? <laughs> they would show up in a pickup truck with their entire family, and it was just their family, right? Their wife and kids, they're still in school. And these guys are the guys that we're playing against. So I'm five foot tall against this great big six foot guy. And, I, and the guys are like, man, we've got to step up if we're going to play hard against these guys. And I can remember wanting to go in and prove how serious that I was. And there's this rebound coming down and there's these massive, you know, timber trunks are all around me. And I jump up against this guy that was so, I, I mean, I'm jumping to the height, the zenith of, of how far I can jump. And I'm just barely at his armpit. And his arm comes down and cracks me on the nose. And the next thing I know, there's a whole group of people around me wondering if I'm alive. I get brushed off of the court. You know, we did our uh, concussion protocol that you do in Southern Oregon back then. Can you see? <laughs> get back in there, you know. <laughs> that was our protocol. I wanted to prove how serious I was and I proved that I wasn't much. Sometimes trying to prove ourselves and prove that we are serious, we find out that we're not up to the task. These men in this moment begin to try to prove to Jesus something that they, if they just took a moment and thought, they would be aware that Jesus could actually see their heart. They don't have to put up a billboard. They didn't have to fight over these things. They just had to rest. Christ wasn't going to let uh, the entire next stage of the development fall to chance. He wanted it to fall to faith. And these men weren't trusting him. So he steps in. Verse 25, and it says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and all those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. The one who is greatest among you must be like the youngest, and the leader must be the servant. A couple of things. Christ was also concerned about stable leadership. He was concerned about their significance. But he wanted them to find their significance in him. He said, let me highlight a couple of things. For who is greater, verse 27, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? is not the one who reclines, but I am among you as one who serves. You are to be like the youngest and you are to be like the servant. Those are the two words he used. They needed to be submissive. When he says the youngest, he's talking about be young like a child. Christ has said this before. Now, what he does not mean by this is that you need to be childish. He doesn't mean that you need to be infantile in your thinking or stomp your foot or ask for your way. What he means by to be like the youngest, he's talking about in the way that you respond to authority. The youngest are called to listen to those around them that are older. They have everyone else in their life directing their path. The younger you are, the more dependent you are. Others tell you when to act. Others tell you when to speak. Others point out to you what is dangerous. Others tell you when and where you are needed, and you go to those places. Those that are younger rely on those that are older to be aware and to direct them away into safe places. I can remember uh, when we were on a walk one time, 
Uh, we had all of our kids with us, Christina and I, and there was a, a moment where uh, we're coming up to a place where there was not a four-way stop. The cars were supposed to be slow, but it was in a residential area, um, and, and it was a place where there wasn't sidewalks that were defined. So the sidewalks weren't, weren't clear, and there's traffic that would just kind of drift through that area. And, and it was safe. We'd walked on this walk hundreds of times, uh, go down to the park and uh, go down there and play and then walk back to our home. It was safe to all of our kids. And I can remember we had taught the kids the importance of when we say stop, you should stop. And we had tested that multiple times, but one of our little ones just began to run ahead out towards where there was traffic and we could see a car that was coming. And I can remember my wife's voice still because I was uh, messing around somewhere, you know, paying attention like a man typically does. Uh, and I hear, stop, stop. And then I hear that concerned cry out, stop. And our little one stops as a car goes right by the front there. I can remember how fearful I was, but also how thankful that eventually they stopped. Kids aren't paid enough, right, to be aware of their surroundings. They rely on you. They rely on us. Christ is making a point. You need to be like the youngest, not childish, but you need to listen to me. It's a strong implication. You, if you are going to lead in any significant way, need to be a listener, one who is listening to the others around you, but the most prominent voice needs to be the father, our parent, right? Wherever he says to go, you should go. Whatever he says to do, you should do. We need to be submissive. I want to highlight that I don't believe that Jesus is telling them to be younger or, you know what, you need to go from being older to act like you're younger. I think that he is asking them to be aware that they are younger. This is the kind of thing that we would tell a parentalized child, right? A child who through hardship or deprivation, imagine he's talking to a group of people who up until they run into Christ had Satan as a father, they have to fend for themselves. They have to find their own way. They did not have any hope in the world. They have lived like a little kid who has had to raise himself and the siblings. They get parentalized. And this would be somebody that is a gifted uh, individual, somebody that comes into the home and says, look, you just be a kid. Why? Because you are a kid. You just be what you are and let me take care of the headship. Christ is looking at them say, you be what you are. You can't run the world. You can't know what's best. You can't do anything. You listen to me, and I'll take care of telling you where you will be successful. Then you will be a leader worth something. You need to be submissive. Listen to me and be what you are. Let me be God. But secondly, they needed to be servants. He uses a word here, diakonos, that we use all the rest of the way through the New Testament. It highlights service. It's not a secondary role. It's not a lower role. This is a serious role. This is a critical way that we not only meet each other's needs, but the way that we, we lead and proclaim the gospel to the world. The first great evangelist that we see in the New Testament in the book of Acts is a deacon who is sharing the gospel and has that voice because of the prominence of the way that they serve. When you serve in the community, when you serve those who are broken, others take note. Amen? It's through service that we have a voice. But we we got to remember that today, don't we? We think if I just had power, if I just had leadership, if I just was significant, if I could go in there and shake the right people, then we would really have a voice. Do you know that's the worst way for Christians to get a voice? 
Mark out in your mind every single time that Christians have risen to prominence and taken control. How did that turn out for the world? We turn from looking to God and we begin to look to ourselves as significant and we start making decisions that are destructive. But every single time you see Christians as servants, every single time that you see Christians going out and proclaiming the gospel and doing deeds that are righteous, faithful followers who are meeting needs will now our voice rises up and the world takes notice. Why would you do that? We do it because of Christ. Servanthood is the path. He says, you don't get to rule and call it good. You don't get to call it service. If you're a ruler, you're a ruler, he says, but my rulers are all servants. You start at service, and it ends there. You must serve like me. Jesus actually looks at them, and he says, who's the one that's greater, the one that's reclining at the table or the one who is serving? In other passages, we know that at this moment, he's already washed their feet. Who's greater? And he looks around the table and he says, and you all know I'm the greatest one here. And he's not saying that like Muhammad Ali, okay? You know? Muhammad Ali proclaimed that he could turn out the light and be in bed and tuck himself in before the light had ever left the room. He said, I'm so fast, right? <laughs> I'm so fast. God created the light. He could sustain it without a switch. Christ looks around and he says, you already know that I'm the greatest, and yet I'm here serving. Do you think it's a gimmick? Do you think that I'm serving you to try to earn some followers? Do you think that I'm serving you because I, I think it's kind of a neat thing to do, practical for a short season so I can wow my followers and have a good story for them? He says, no. You want to know why I'm serving you? This is my character. I'm the God of the universe, and my character is to serve. You want to be like me? You're not like me unless you're a servant. You don't start at the head of the table and tell everyone that you're their benefactor and they're only blessed because you've given them a little something. No, you get down on your hands and knees, you wash your feet, and you take care of their needs, and that is when you're acting like God. Sheep are called to shepherd sheep, and the only way that sheep lead sheep is if they're following the master into good pasture. They lead by example, being one of them. But third, they needed to stay faithful. It's not just submissive, not just be servants, but they needed to stay faithful. You are those, he says in verse 28, who have stood by me in my trials. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, so I grant you. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's saying this is a good way. One other author, when he was writing about this, said, isn't it gracious the way that Christ addressed these men? He says, you are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials, rather than saying, you boneheads never get it right. Every single time I give you an opportunity, you are running amok. He doesn't say that. He doesn't berate them at this moment. He said, you wonderful guys have been with me through my trials. What trials? The construction here doesn't allow us to say in the future or the one I'm about to go through. We know that he didn't get any of the disciples called to him until after already he had that great temptation, a face-to-face -face confrontation with Satan. So you have Satan on one end and the cross at the other. All the disciples scatter before the cross. So he's talking about the trials that are in the middle. What trials have they walked with him through? Now surely there was hardship. It is hard to be christ the God of the universe, veiled in flesh, trapped here in incarnation, being among us. 
Um, you have the world, you have the devil that we're trying to assail him, but it wasn't just the hardships he's talking about. The other trials are tests that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They were there through all of these moments that highlighted this isn't just an ordinary man. You've walked with me, you've ate food with me, you slept in the same room as I am at, you are in the same location as me, and you've seen not only the hardships I've gone through, because I'm going to go through greater than that, but you've seen all the proofs that I'm God. Because you are the ones that can best testify of me, you'll get to judge in the future whether or not people have followed me. You followed me. This is a kindness that he gives them. You stayed during my trials. Christ has given them some tests. They have stayed with him, and he blesses them. Don't we have an honoring God? When you think about how weak we are and how low he has to set the cookies so we can get to them, right? He says, look, I, I brought it right down to here. And I gave you this to do, and this to do, and this to do. All right? I wanted you to hold this bag, do this thing, whatever we would tell to our kids. We want them to come and help, but we know that they can't carry the full load. Christ looks at them and says, you've stayed, and I'm going to give you a role. But you need to understand, it is all of me. You need to follow me. They had been arguing about who is the greatest. What we need to take away from this is that you and I would end up in their exact same shoes. We constantly in our hearts are fighting and trying to see whether or not we are significant. And God is constantly trying to say, let me show you the path to, through, to true significance. Will you serve? Will you submit? Will you stay faithful? And we constantly are battling over whether or not we will accept the job description. We want to be significant. We want others to register our significance. We want others to appreciate it in our heart. And God says, you let me take care of that. As we wrap up your notes, a quest for significance outside of Christ leads to friction, fighting, and failure. If you have battles in your life, James tells us it's because of the things that are inside your soul. It's not because of God. It's because of us. Ultimately, we will either end up surly or settled. We will either trust Christ or trust ourselves. Judas trusted himself. He was gone, and the rest of the story has been written. But these men would trust Christ. The question that is in front of us this morning is, what will we do? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be saints that are settled, that we would find our significance in you, and we do ask, Father, that you would help us uh, to be able to see what it is that Christ was calling these men to, uh, not just to stop fighting, not just to be aware that they're not great, but he was inviting them to a role. If you would become servants, if you would become those who would suffer alongside me, then greatness would be assigned to you. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to trust the finished work of Christ that we would be settled with your opinion alone, that we wouldn't fight to try to prove ourselves to a world that may not understand. But Father, I pray that you would help us to be found as servants who are eager only to please you. And we pray that that would, in our life, be the thing that makes all the difference. We pray in Christ's name, amen.